scripture this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. As you're being seated, uh, let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to, to look at the face of your Son, the radiance of your glory. So, Lord, I ask that the words that I speak would, you know, all the gibberish that doesn't make sense would just go away, but, but we'd be left with your words for us today. In your name I pray. Amen. That is probably one of the, my favorite uh, portions of Scripture. If I had one book of the Bible to take to a desert island, you know, if I was marooned there, it would be the book of Hebrews. So, anyway, that's an aside. Uh, we as a church, citywide, have been going through a series in Advent called The Turning Point of History. And Brant, last week, uh, he brought us this reality of, of Jesus as the priest. The priest who is a mediator uh, of a better covenant. A mediator, the one who actually fills the gap that substitutes himself for the other. We've also, at the beginning of the series, Brand laid the groundwork and he addressed this promise of a coming king. This, this Old Testament promise of a king in the line of Judah, in the line of David, to actually rule and reign the people of Israel. But he was, he's a king like no other. A king of, of grief and of sorrow. And we, and we were left confronted with the reality that is this king somebody that we can actually submit to? And Brian, last week with the priest, he, he addressed, is this, is this priest somebody that I can actually surrender to that can actually allow me to see God's face? So this week, we're going to shift gears. We're going to look at a diamond. We're going to look at this Advent diamond from a different angle, and we're going to look at the prophet. And in doing so, we're going to address a really difficult issue for us, and that is the problematic voice of truth in our world. Now, Confession time. Some of you might be like me. You know, once the Christmas tree grows up and the lights are on and, the, and you know the never-ending Christmas music from, like, Halloween, and you begin, like me, to morph. You turn into kind of your seasonal Grinch and you just survive this time of year. And you might be thinking, what in the world does Jesus as prophet have to do with Christmas? You know... How does Jesus' prophet actually deal with, you know, me finding a parking spot? How does Jesus' prophet help me deal with my credit card bill next month when I maybe have overextended myself? Now, if that's, if that's you, bear with me. Some of you guys are Christmas people I know, and that's okay. So this is, this is for the rest of us in the room. So we're gonna, I'm going to mix things up from my usual routine. I'm going to give you my outline straight off the get-go so there's no confusion to know where I'm going. We're, in our introduction, we're going to look at this, this question that all humanity ponders, and that is, is there anybody out there? Is there anybody out there? We're going to look for the, this prophetic voice from the beyond. 
Then we're going to look at the revealed voice of God, the problematic voice of interpretation, and finally, the supremacy of the voice of the Son. So, point number one. When I was a kid, I grew up in a place further north and further east. And one of the highlights as a kid, like I actually really loved where I grew up as a kid. And one of the highlights was during Christmas time, there was this possibility that there might be northern lights. I remember one, one Christmas season, I was probably 14 or 15 years old. And I don't know whether it was super cold or, or whether the, you know, there was solar flares in the atmosphere and everything was just right. But for about a whole week, I saw the glorious uh, display of blues, greens, yellows, dancing in the atmosphere. So, you know, we didn't have much money back then. So we thought, oh, we're going to go on a holiday. So we would don all our, you know, our redneck formals on, our insulated coveralls, and we'd put ourselves and we'd, we'd walk outside and we'd, you know, this stage is a lot smaller than East Van. So if I fall off, you know what happens. And, and we would shovel and we would pretend and we would make ourselves like these lounge chairs. And then we would get our hot chocolate and we put like a little uh, umbrella in it, thinking that we're uh, somewhere warm. And we would stare as a family at the sky and probably till we almost froze to death. What we saw was an exotic dance in the sky, purely for our wonder and our enjoyment. It was like nature itself was speaking directly to us. I remember distinctly feeling like, like God himself was talking to me. He was trying to communicate to me through the splendor of his majesty. Now, of course, we can explain the, you know, Aurora Borealis with physics, magnetic fields, colliding particles. And, and you know, with, even with all this knowledge, though, there's something about the northern lights that still capture my attention. In fact, it would be almost worthwhile to go to Alberta at this time of year just to see them. So have you ever wondered, have you ever been like me? Have you ever paused to consider and looked up to the stars and wondered, is there anybody out there? I know, I know most of you grew up in the church and you've got all the right answers for that. But have you ever really stopped, put yourself outside of yourself and actually pondered the universe? Have you ever wondered the nature of a God who could create something so vast, so big, so beautiful and so dangerous? Well, this morning, let's join the rest of humanity and ponder this question. Mankind's collective question. Is there anybody out there? Is there anything intelligent that speaks to us? Stephen Hawking says, people have always wanted answers to the big questions. Where did we come from? How did the universe begin? What is the meaning and design behind it all? Is there anyone out there? The creation accounts of the past now seem less relevant and credible. They have been replaced by a variety of what can only be called superstitions, ranging from new age to Star Trek. Now, I'm not sure if we as a church, we really realize just how big this question is to mankind. Our whole culture is obsessed with this idea. You know, from our art to our music to our science fiction shows that we watch. We look, we've even got a guy who blasts his roadster into space. Come on. Is there an intelligent voice from the beyond? Now, this this question has plagued mankind from the dawn of creation. And as we speak, billions of dollars are spent each year on exploratory research. We've got, you know, 
land-based telescopes looking at the sky. We've got space-based telescopes looking at the sky. We've got like massive like antenna arrays just listening to like radio waves to see if anybody's actually intelligent speaking. In fact, there's even this organization, and it's a credible organization called SETI, the Search for the Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now, there are over 130 scientists, credible scientists, who are actually, their job is to ponder this question of the beyond. Is there anything intelligent out there? Now, this search for a voice from outside is, is, is deep, and, and it's... And it, and it shows up in everything from, you know, like Baby Yoda on Disney Plus to like a new Star Trek movie with Chris Pine. Once again, Stephen Hawking, he says this. He says, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet with a very, on a very average star. But we can understand the universe. And that makes us something very special. The greatest theoretical physicist the world has ever known in a lifelong search for what's out there he, he looked at the cosmos, the chaos of the cosmos, and recognized that we are something special. And on that coattails of that thinking, there's an unspoken longing to not be alone. Now, to explain this in theological categories, humanity, that's all of us, whether we believe in God or not, humanity is in a prophetic search for God from the beyond. We have a longing to hear a voice from beyond we have a longing for truth that explains who we are and why we're here. From antiquity, human beings have wanted a universe that has talked to them. As I stated earlier, it's, from, it's, in our, it's in our literature, it's in our fiction. Like We have a desire for talking trees and talking animals. We want to be known. But humanity's greatest fear under all of this is this, is this nagging little question. What if we're what if we're all that there is? What if there is no other intellectual, rational other? Well, this is where this connects with Christmas. The good news is, the good news of Advent is, the reason we have this desire within us is because there is. This collective longing in and of itself is a statement that we instinctively know, we know that we're not alone. In looking to the stars, humanity has missed the forest for talking trees. See, this intellectual other, this rational other, this truth that we're searching for, he has spoken. He is God and he has spoken. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The creator of the universe, the creator of this advanced breed of monkeys on an insignificant planet orbiting a minor star, as Hawking says, we're special because the creator of the universe spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In our voracious search for truth, we have missed the fact that the truth has been spoken, past tense, into the entirety of human history by the prophetic Word of God. Now you may be sitting there thinking, oh, okay. And I've been a Christian for a long time. And now, okay, that's interesting. I've never had a Stephen Hawking quote in a sermon before. But, uh, but guys, I don't think you really realize just how significant and how profound this is that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that brings us to our second point, the revealed voice of God. 
Now, part of the problem of this whole concept of prophet that confuses us is the fact that we don't really connect it with truth, do we? Now, we think of some bearded old guy, you know, okay, not, not me, some bearded old guy with a longer beard, with a cloak on, with a hood thing. Good thing I'm not wearing my East Van clothing. And, uh, or we th- even worse, we think of like something out of Shakespeare's Macbeth, you know, some old lady witch in a hut with bad teeth stir- stirring something. And for maybe just a bit of change, you know, through some nonsensical imagery, you can actually have your fate changed with a little bit of cash. Let me tell you, that is not what the Bible teaches of what prophetic truth is. Let's be clear on that. Now, if for, for fun this afternoon, a really good exercise that might take you three or four weeks uh, you, if you looked for, thus saith the Lord in the old Testament and the new Testament in your Bibles, you would come across that occurrence about 1900 times, 1900 times that God has directly spoken by the voice of men into history. Something that, you know, that's spoken that many times, probably we should pay attention to, but what does it actually mean to be a prophet though? I think one of the clearest snapshots of what uh, this pr- prophetic voice or prophet is supposed to be is in Exodus chapter 4. Um, to set the stage, we have the people of Israel. They've been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And you've got Moses. He's, this, he's a Jewish guy. He's part of this Israelite, but he's actually the adopted son of the Pharaoh himself, the king. And so through a series of unfortunate events, he actually ends up killing a guy. And he's hiding in the wilderness because, you know, he's afraid. He's just like you and me. And the God of the universe, in a weird and crazy story, reveals himself to Moses in a bush that's burning. And this God of the universe speaks to Moses and he says, Hey, I want you to go talk to your father, the Pharaoh. And I want you, by my voice, to liberate my people. You must be the voice of God. What does Moses say? He says, I don't think I can do that. Send somebody else. Look, we're sending vehicles into space. And the God of the universe appears to Moses. And he says, yeah, no thanks. No thanks. Wow. So we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. Now, this is where it gets interesting. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. Aaron was to be the prophetic voice of Moses. Aaron was the mouthpiece saying exactly what Moses was instructed to say. This is the pattern of the prophets all throughout the entirety of scriptures. The prophet was to be the direct mouthpiece from God, not just visions of the future and some obscure condemnation, but the very mouthpiece of God speaking truth into history. So when Isaiah, Jeremiah, when he, you know, Elijah, you know, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all of those guys, when they speak, thus saith the Lord, We are to know that they're speaking truth itself from God. This is what we're supposed to understand when we read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. 
long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is what we're to understand. We need to understand that the prophet was the mouthpiece, the conduit of revealed truth. Now, for as long as we can remember, humanity has related to God via the mouthpiece, via the prophet. So if that's true, why don't we listen to the prophet? Why didn't we listen to the prophet collectively as humanity? Why did things go south? And why do we still search this for the stars for truth? And that brings us to the next point, the problematic tr- voice of interpretation. So we don't really listen, I don't think, because we, we don't believe what the prophet's saying is actually, you know, saying is actually coming from God. We believe that there's some, know, some financial gain in it. Or, or we, you know, we don't believe that this message is for our benefit. We don't really trust the prophetic word of God, truth, because of this nasty little thing called personal interpretation. People don't believe the Bible because we, we think that we can interpret what God says for ourselves. We have this belief central to humanity is that everyone has the right to their own interpretation to what truth is. That is a bold statement. The good news and the bad news is that this problem has existed before the, since there was prophets. In fact, this problem of interpretation has existed since before death was even in the world. Now, but don't take my word for it. I want you to see it for yourself. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Just kind of step into your collective time machine and let's go back and put ourselves into the Garden of Eden for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know what God actually said. And you know that God said it to them face to face. They had a face to face relationship with God. He said that they could eat of any tree except for one, one tree. And, you know, in this serpent, this little snaky guy, you know, Satan, Satan himself twists the truth, interprets God's direct words to Adam and Eve in a new light. And he casts doubt on the trustfulness of God's words. He opens the door to personal interpretation. And as the story goes, as a con- and they eat the fruit. And as a consequence, as a punishment, they're evicted. Not just from the garden. They're evicted from the presence of God. That's the real tragedy. From that point on, humans have had to deal with God through the mouthpiece. They're forced to hear from God through somebody else. See, the whole entirety of human history went south, you know, a train wrecked due to bad personal interpretation. See, as much as we want to hear from the beyond, as much as we think a roadster in space can actually give us answers, greater than that, we have a compulsion, a desire to have and protect ourselves, to interpret things for ourselves. See, from that point on, our search for unadulterated truth became marred and twisted through interpretation. Now, just in case you think, okay, that was like whatever your view on the history of the world is. That was like forever ago. What does that have to do with today? How does that actually apply, you know, to finding a parking spot? See, at the cusp of 2020 in Vancouver, I think 
we as a society generally have kind of two view, versions of truth. We, we, this is affects our day to day as well. We have two kind of alternating truth kind of constructs. The first one is, um, to speaking in broad terms that it would be, could be called naturalism or select select, uh, English heat secularism. It's a worldview dictated by, you know, rational empirical data, you know, interpretation of science. You know, all we have is all we can see. All we know is what we can measure. And therefore there is no ultimate reality. There is no God and nothing is God. This, this is the view proposed by German philosopher Nietzsche. He says this, he says, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. Now, he didn't really think God is actually was alive anyway. What, he's, what that means was that there was no room and no place in society for Christian belief. No authorized truth. No ab- absolute truth. So there was no, no, no reality for, for society to have that. And Stephen Hawking expresses it this way. It's a little more subtle. God may exist, but science can explain the universe without the need of a creator. The scientific account is complete. Theology is unnecessary. See, Stephen Hawking, collecting all the data, he interprets it as, eh, God is irrelevant, unnecessary. Now, many in our culture find that view compelling. The second and almost more compelling version of truth is that it could be called, you know, progressive pluralism or uh, naturalism or, or rather pantheism. Uh, this view is that God is everything. God is in everything. Everything is in God. And all we have to do is look inside to actually find our inner creativity, our inner potential, our inner greatness, and our inner spirituality. Now, if there's one person in this camp that almost com- commands a prophetic voice, it's Oprah. Oprah says this. I can't do an Oprah impression, so I won't even try. It all boils down to one thing. It's your relationship to the source. And that relationship to which we call God or don't call God or don't even know God is God. You know, when you claim that and see that, the literal vibration of your life will change. The vibration of your life will change. I'm not exactly sure what that means. It isn't until you come to a spiritual understanding of who you are. Not necessarily a religious feeling, but deep down, the spirit within, that then you can begin to take control. This is what we call Vancouver spirituality. And it permeates our life and our culture from everything from the spandex that we wear to the tarot cards that we look at and to even almost to the practice of mindfulness. Ironically, both of these opposing interpretations of truth have one thing in common. What is it? Yeah, it's the belief that I myself, the individual, I derive truth from within. I become the arbiter of what is truth and what isn't. Even Stephen Hawking believes this. Remember to look up to the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious. And however difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. It matters that you just don't give up. We are the interpreters of truth. And the problem is our autonomy. Our autonomy. We develop intellectual constructs to do all the things that our inner self wants to do. Put another way, we develop an intellectual construct, a worldview, a kind of a metaphysical interpretation, a version of truth 
to do all the things that we really selfishly want to do inside in belief. And that, people, is the problem of interpretation. Now, dealing with this issue, Paul, speaking to a church in Rome, he says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22. He says, this is heavy. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's interpretation. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. For they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. God has spoken And in our interpretive grid, we actively suppress the truth and ignore him. It's almost like we need a better prophetic voice to cut through all of this mess of our internal construct of truth. Now, let's be clear. All of us here, every single one of us at one point in our life have suppressed the truth. We have suppressed the truth by interpreting it in our own ways for our own reasons. We we need Something else to guide the way. That leads us to our final point. The supremacy of the voice of the son. Now in Matthew chapter 17, we have this really kind of weird, wonderful, odd story. So Jesus, he takes Peter, James, and John, and they decide to go for a hike up the mountain. And the text says when they get to the top, Jesus is transformed. The, the, the English word that they use there is transfigured. In Greek, it's like uh, metamorphosis. Like, so you literally, you get, you, this is where we get our, you know, metamorphosis word. Literally, Jesus is changed. His, his face is shining like the sun and, and he's glowing. His, his clothes are as white as light. And then beside him are like two dead guys, Moses and Elijah. So you got glowing Jesus and two dead guys. But don't miss the significance here in this odd story. You see, with him are the sources, the two sources of revealed truth. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet of all prophets, par excellence. Peter, I think Peter doesn't get enough good credits here, but Peter, recognizing that something significant is having, he says, hey, can we make three tents here? Now, this is kind of, we're like, this is out of left field for us. We're like, what? Camping? Really? Like, was it raining or what? But we don't get the symbolism here. Peter is not being particularly obtuse. Actually, I think, I think Peter's petition to build tents, it was his, he, he, he saw something happening. He saw that God was here, and it was a reference to proper worship. You see, he probably was thinking of, of back, you know, after Moses, when they went out and actually Moses liberated the, the people of Israel and, and they were led by God and his presence would dwell in a tent, the tent of meeting. And, and I think Peter's thinking of this and he says, look, he was so overcome by worship and says, can I, can I build something to you for you to reside in so I can worship you there? And before we can find out, as Peter's talking, a bright light overshadows them. 
Okay, you got glowing Jesus and a bright light overshadows them like a cloud. And we hear this voice of God. So we pick up the story in Matthew 17, verses 5 through 7. He, Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came up and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The voice from beyond declares Jesus as his son. And they were to listen to him. The symbolism is huge here. We are to understand that Jesus is superior to all other forms of prophetic communication from God. Moses, Elijah, because he is the son of God. When he speaks, it's as if God himself is speaking. Now we can fully understand the words of Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir, the king of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain, experienced on the mountain, we have articulated right here by the author of Hebrews. In previous times, God has spoken. And as Romans said, we, we, we all, it's all been proclaimed for us to see, but we actively suppress the truth. And the amazing thing about Christmas, about Advent, the turning point of history is that God, knowing that we suppress the truth, he ups his game. And from that very first Christmas onwards, we relate to God through the son, not through a prophet. That is intimate. We can see the radiance of the glory of God because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Not only do we hear the voice of God, but we see Jesus. And when he comes again, we will actually see him face to face, just like Adam and Eve. There is objective truth. The prophets of God brought it. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus is not only the subject of prophecy, but he is the object of prophecy. Not only does he bring truth, he is truth. Jesus is superior because he doesn't reveal the fractured, a broken, a little itsy bitsy pieces of truth, but he is God himself. And we're here to listen to her. Therefore, Jesus is the final and better prophet. I'll let you in on a little secret. We don't need Oprah. Let's be honest. The truth of Jesus, as beautiful, as wondered as wonderful as just we've just articulated, is really hard. We see Jesus and we see his absolute claims. And we find it abrasive to our lifestyle. 
Look, we have just been through three months studying the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know what you guys, but I've been left undone. Undone. We can't handle the truth of Jesus. So we look for ways to interpret it in our own, in our own way to soften the truth or water down Jesus. Or, or we negotiate a settlement that's a little bit better so that we can actually kind of reduce some of the requirements, the truth that Jesus brings. We interpret the hard truths of Jesus just so that we can look out for ourselves, to protect ourselves, to keep our integrity intact. It comes down to really one thing. We're afraid. We are afraid. We are afraid of the truth that Jesus brings because we're afraid to look into the face of God. We're afraid of what we might see. We're afraid that he might see our shame. We're afraid that he'll see our guilt. We're afraid that he, he might challenge our brokenness. We're afraid that when we look at him, we'll be destroyed. And it's safer for us to just suppress the truth. Now, that might be true if Jesus was only the prophet, but I doubt it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 6 says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Terrified! You see, the disciples had the same dilemma that we actually have today. We're forced to, they were forced to deal with the absolute truth and claims of Jesus. What makes the advent the turning point of history is the fact that Jesus is not only the son, not only the prophet, the voice of God, but he is also the priest. He is also the king. He is the priest because Jesus is the glory of God as he makes purification for our sins. He, as Brad pointed out last week, he's the mediator of a better covenant, the exact imprint of God. He dies because we actively suppress the truth. We are, as Romans said, we are foolish. We're claiming to be wise and we're dark and futile in our thinking. Jesus goes to the cross. He suffers. He dies in our place to bring us to the light so that we can actually see just like Peter, James, and John. Jesus is also king though. He's the promised king and he's the coming king. He's sitting at the right hand of God and he displays his ultimate power through weakness. First as a baby and then going to the cross. His death, his burial, and his resurrection, he becomes the only king worthy to submit to. We no longer have to suppress the truth to survive. We can surrender ourselves to this king because we know that he will return one day to put everything right. All the injustice and stuff in the world that seems so wrong, Jesus is going to make it right and we will see him face to face. Because he is prophet, because he is priest, and because he is king, this means we can look at the truth of Jesus and not be obliterated by the raw power that holds the universe in place. Matthew seventeen six and 7 says this again. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, Rise, have no fear. And when he lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The advent is the turning point of history because the ultimate voice from beyond touches us in our fear. He takes our shame and he removes it. And he says to us, do not be afraid. We can look up into the eyes, into the face of Jesus. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, 
We all build tents. We're all at the top of the mountain and we're building our own tents. And we're building our own tents for our own glory and for our own worship. And there's two camps of people here. Ones that are, that are like, okay, this Jesus guy, I don't get him. And, and you're, you, know, you have Jesus inside of the same kind of truth category as Santa Claus. I leave you with one question. What if you need something outside your interpretive grid to actually solve the stuff that's nagging inside of you that you don't express to anyone else? Others of you this morning, you want to believe, you, you do believe, you try to believe, but you, know, you, you passively suppress the truth in areas of the way. We're weak, we're broken, and, and we go about our lives and we kind of build a construct and we build our own tent and it's held together by spit and duct tape and we're at the top of the mountain, we're in this tent and we're hiding in our shame and our guilt and we're in the dark. I plead with you this morning. Unzip the tent and look into the face of Jesus. He is worthy to be praised because his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. I watched Handel's Messiah last night. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. He is worthy to be praised because he is God with us. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.